0: Um, since we're all family and since whatever we talk about never leaves the room, uh, let me ask you all a personal question. Um, have you ever gotten yourself into a bad situation? Something you said, something you didn't say, something you did, uh, something you didn't do, and you just found out, hey, I've gotten myself in a bad situation. How, how many would say, yeah, that's me. I've gotten myself in a bad situation. Some of you are lying in church. How horrible. How horrible. Terrible. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever gotten yourself in a bad situation and against all odds, you escaped? You managed to get yourself out of it, right? A few of us, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes we get ourselves in a bad situation and then against all odds, we manage to get ourselves out. That happened to me uh, one time in high school. I had finished up football practice and I was under strict uh, directions from my parents that as soon as football practice was over, I was to come home except I had done the math in my head and football practice ended a little bit early and I thought that I had enough time to squeeze in a quick visit to my girlfriend's house. Now, I was dating a girl. This was years before I ever saw Allison pray in that short khaki skirt that I talked about a few weeks ago. <laughs> so, you know, I hadn't got to that, that wonderful event in my life. So I, I was going to my girlfriend's house because I, thed, I said, you know, I can get there. I can go in, visit a little bit and then I can get back out and I'll be home before anybody knows any different. So I was in a hurry, and and so, you know, to give you the backstory before I go any further, about a year or so before this, on Valentine's Day, I had uh, bought my girlfriend uh, a cat for Valentine's Day. Now, I hate cats, and I didn't know people bought them, much less that they were actually expensive ones, and this was an expensive, like, cat, like, just kind of unique cat. I I knew that I didn't like them, but I didn't know that that I was uh, allergic to them until I put it in the front seat of my pickup (laughs) when I went to go pick it up, you know, on top of Frank's mountain in Bell County and halfway down the mountain I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe and I was like I hate this sucker and I don't even it doesn't even have a name yet and so I I gave I gave her the cat and you know it was wonderful and oh how sweet you know Uh, so now I'm on my way after football practice and I'm in a hurry and I pull down their long driveway and all of a sudden I'm not paying any attention and as I'm you know speeding into the driveway I feel a thump 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 Ow. that doesn't feel good so I I swung over into the other side to get out to see what in the world was going on, and I got out, and it was patches. Dead. I mean, four days Jesus late, Lazarus dead. I mean, (laughs) prayers, anointing oil, not going to help. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This is terrible. I've gotten myself in such, a, in such a bad situation. Then uh, her mom had left the office early. And so as I'm standing out there, you know, looking at this situation, trying to figure out how in the world am I going to tell her that I've killed the cat, her mom comes speeding down the driveway and, and she pulls in right where I was pulled at. And all of a sudden she goes, thump, 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 thump. <laughs> and she got out of the car and she looked at Patches there, all dead, and says, Oh, my gosh, I've killed the cat. I said it can happen to anybody. Don't beat yourself up about this. You know what you call that? You call that walking with Jesus. That's the kind of stuff that happens when Jesus... No, I wasn't even walking with Jesus back then. That was just grace. I mean, that was just like, oh, my gosh. All right, I'm free. I'm free. Cindy, you can tell them whatever you want to tell them. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. Let me ask another question. Have you ever gotten yourself in a bad situation? Something you did, something you didn't do, something you said, something you didn't say. And then in the middle of the bad situation that you got yourself into, you made it worse. You made it worse. You did something, you said something, and all of a sudden it's just worse. Uh, I, I did this once, we were uh, on a vacation in the Caribbean and I decided that I was gonna take Allison and two of our friends uh, sailing. Say, how many times have you been sailing before? Never, but I am confident enough that I could figure it out as I went. And so we rented the boat and we got on the sailing, you know, and the wind, you know, the wind the wind was working for us in the beginning and and we were going out and it was beautiful. And then, you know, the, the shore got further and further and further and the people got smaller and smaller and smaller and the water got darker and darker and darker. And, and, and all of a sudden they were like, you know, are, are, are you okay? You good? I saw, yeah, this is gorgeous. This is wonderful. Just take a look around. This is beautiful. We're in paradise. And, and then a few minutes later, uh, the authorities sent a rescue boat out and said, hey, uh, you know, y'all. Awfully far out, is everything okay? I'm like, it's okay. I've got this under control. And I fully believe that I would have the situation under my control, but it got worse and worse. And pretty soon they came back and they made us get on the rescue boat and they hauled us back in. Because sometimes you get yourself in a bad situation and you make it worse. And that's what we're going to talk about. Today, If you're a guest of ours, we've been in this series and we've been talking about the Bible, and the Bible is not a book, but it is a collection of books, 66 books to be precise. It's divided into two parts. It's divided into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, or a better way to talk about it would be the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And within those two parts, there are many parts, and within those many parts, there are many stories. And when you put all of the parts and all of the stories together, it forms one greater overarching story of what I call the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible, once you understand the story of the Bible, it helps you and it helps me to make sense of all the other stories in the Bible. Now, back a few weeks ago, we started at the beginning of the story, which is the book of Genesis. And that's the foundation on which the rest of the story is going to be built. And if you weren't here for that, I'm gonna give you the headlines of Genesis 1 through 11. So if you wanna know what the first 11 chapters of Genesis is all about, it's about this right here. We God created, we rebelled, we ran away, God's coming after us. Now, we've said this out loud many times, but I want to at all of our churches here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, let's all just say this out loud. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, God's coming after us. And that pretty much sums up the first 11 chapters of Genesis and introduces us to the rest of the Bible. And this is the major storyline for the rest of the scripture. That God created us, we rebelled, we ran away, and he's coming after us. Uh, We talked about a few weeks ago how in the year 2091 B.C., Uh, God weighed into the fray, into the human dilemma, and and God made a promise to a guy by the name of Abram. He would later change his name to Abraham, but he made a promise to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, uh, I'm gonna make your name great, and I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation, and out of that nation, every nation of the world is going to be blessed. And, And not only that, but he told Abraham that out of you, Abraham, will come kings. And so it was this incredible promise. It was an unconditional promise. It was what we call a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. It was unconditional in the sense that Abraham, no matter what Abraham did or didn't do, God was gonna fulfill his promise. And so Abraham eventually fathered Isaac and the promise was passed on to Isaac and Isaac fathered Jacob and Jacob would also inherit the promise. And then Jacob would have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel would be God's chosen nation. God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. And, and thus we have Genesis 12 through the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 marks the beginning of God's promise to Abraham and the chronicles of the patriarch. So if you wanna read stories about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their children and all the stories about that, you can read Genesis 12 through the end of the book. Now, interesting stories, but not the story. Interesting parts, but not the point of the story. At the end of Genesis, Jacob and his 12 sons uh, moved down to Egypt to be close to Joseph or Jacob and his 11 sons to get closer to Joseph. Joseph who had been betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, but now through an incredible story had become prime minister of Egypt. So they moved down there, they reconciled their relationship, they forgive each other, you know, it was wonderful, it was beautiful and then Jacob dies and then Joseph dies and then a new Pharaoh comes to power that doesn't care anything about Joseph and how he saved Egypt once upon a time. And so now the Pharaoh looks out and sees all the descendants of Joseph, all the descendants of Jacob and says, these people are a threat for revolution. And so he decided the only option we have is to place them into slavery. And so the descendants of Abraham are going to spend the next 400 years in Egypt. Then what happens in 1446 is one of the most monumental events in all of Israel's history called the Exodus. And this is when God rescued them from the Egyptian slavery. Moses led them out. They crossed over the Red, you know, the Red Sea and over on the other side while on dry ground. Uh, they were now a people who were formerly slaves. Now they have been set free. And this would become one of the most iconic events in their history, one that they would celebrate and still celebrate every year called Passover. But this is where we left off last week, and this is where we pick up the story this week. Once they left Egypt and once they were on the other side of the Red Sea, they went to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God is going to give them his law. They're going to spend about 11 months there. And God is going to give them his law so that they know how to live as his people. He wanted Israel to be a people under... law, a people under authority, specifically under God's authority. And so God gives them this law to make them different from all the surrounding nations around them. And then not only that, but not only does God give him 10 commandments, but God gives them over 600 commandments. And at the end of Exodus, God has told Moses about a tabernacle that he was to build or a temple, a portable temple. Because God had always, since Eden, since the sin of the garden, God had always wanted to dwell back with his people. When Adam and Eve sinned. God kicked them out of the garden, and they lost access to the presence of God. And so now God says, I want to be back with my people again. I want you to build a tabernacle. There's going to be this holiest of holy place. That's where I'm going to reside. And so this is how the book of Exodus ends. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, or the presence of God, and the glory of God filled tabernacle. And once again, this is like a little like a little speck of Eden right here in the midst of Israel. Uh, the holiest of holies where God's presence was. Uh, that was like the Garden of Eden. This, this was the place where God's presence resided. This was the place where heaven and earth intermingled. This was the place where men and God met together. And so God had once again, he got back in the presence of his people, which is where he wanted to be from the very beginning. After they leave Sinai, they go to the banks of the Jordan River and they're getting ready to cross over into the land of promise, this piece of land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan. They sent a committee of twelve, maybe you remember this story, they sent a committee of twelve across the river to spy out of what was happening amongst the Canaanites. And so what they discovered, the Canaanites were taller than the Israelites and they were better at war than the Israelites. So the committee came back and ten voted, no we don't go. Two voted, yes we do go. The two that voted to go was Caleb and Joshua. And the ten faithless spies, uh, they influenced the rest of the nation. And so the nation decided, we cannot trust God. We will decide to walk in fear rather than faith because we cannot take the land even though God told us the land belongs to us and that he would help us take the land. And so because of their faithlessness, God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years Moses would pastor them during this time. Moses would lead them during this time. And then Moses' life comes to an end. And the baton of leadership would be passed on To Joshua, and that brings us to the conquest of Canaan, which took place. And again, this is not once upon a time stuff, or in a land far, far away. This is history, and this was 1405 to 1400 BC, so 1400 or so years before Jesus ever shows up on the pages of history. Moses is dead. Joshua is now the leader, and he leads the nation over the River Jordan, and they go into the land of Canaan, and they begin a military expedition. They begin a military campaign against the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. Now. Let me just say this as a timeout and as a parenthesis. If what you read in Joshua bothers you, because there, there's a lot of war language, there's a lot of massacre, there seems to be you know all of these atrocities and things that we read about in Joshua, and and those are those are great things to talk about. Uh, those are great questions to have. But one thing that I want you to keep in mind that when you read through the book of Joshua, as and when you read through other you know acts uh, or you know writings from ancient Near East literature, one thing that you're going to find is that there's a lot of hyperbole, a lot of hyperbolic language in the book of Joshua. So things like kill everybody, you know, leave no one standing, you know, were were ways of hyperbolically communicating something that was going on. Uh I can give you things that maybe you want to read about to read further on that, but I will tell you just as an honest uh honest thing, there are no emotionally satisfying answers to the things that we read in Joshua, but just because something is not emotionally satisfying does not mean it's not true. Just because it's not emotionally satisfying does not mean that it isn't true. So they go in and they almost drive the Canaanites out, but not completely. And that's going to come back to haunt them in the centuries to come. So Joshua dies in 1380 BC. But before he dies, he gives this rousing speech at the end of his life. And he tells the people, he says, listen, obey God and he'll protect you in this land. If you disobey God, God will pull his protection and you will be carried off from this land. And so he tells them this over and over and over and over again. He also says, beware of the Canaanites and all these nations which you have failed to drive out because they're going to ensnare you. They're going to be traps for you because you're going to look at them. You're going to be attracted to the way they live their life. You're going to be attracted to their pantheon of gods. And you're going to end up following after them. And then he says something really interesting. He, He looks at the nation who's supposed to be living as a nation under law, a nation with God as their king. They're supposed to be God's people. He is supposed to be their king. And he looks at them and he says, I want you today to put away the gods and the idols that you carry around with you, that your fathers and ancestors worshiped on the other side of Euphrates. Which says something really interesting and really important. Here's this group of people who have been rescued out of slavery They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and God took care of them. They crossed over the river Jordan and now they have started to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And they've been carrying idols with them all along. And here's what we see. This is the storyline of the Old Testament. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we see in Israel and all of these groups, people who have hearts that are prone to wonder. We find people who have at their heart a default setting of rebellion against God. We see in these people a group of people who, when left to themselves, will choose death over life, who will choose cursings over death. And in learning something about them, listen to me, we learn something about ourselves. Because we share our humanity with the people that we read about in the Old Testament. And just like them, you and I, we have hearts that are prone to wonder And we have hearts that at the default setting, it will choose to rebel against God rather than surrender to God. When left to ourselves, we will choose death rather than life. And we will choose the curse rather than the blessing. And that's what we see in them. And in seeing it in them, we start seeing it in ourselves. And so it says after Joshua died, it says... After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor knew what he had done for Israel. And this takes us out of the book of Joshua into the book of Judges, another book of history. We've left the five books of law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've left Joshua. Now we've come into the era of what's called the Judges. And once Joshua died and once the elders around him died... The people forsook and forgot God. They just just forsook God. They went after the gods of the Canaanites, and they began to worship other gods. And here's the thing. This is true for them, and this is true for all of us. And don't ever forget this. Every single one of us ultimately become like the thing that we worship. Whatever it is that we worship. Now, there may not be a ritual, and you may not think of it in a religious term, but whatever is most important to you above all things... Whatever you give your heart to the most your soul to the most whatever you give your energy to the most whatever you give yourself to the most whatever it is that you worship that's what you end up being like and when the Israelites worshiped those other gods they ended up being like those other gods because those other gods practiced immorality those other gods practiced violence those other gods didn't care about how people lived those other gods didn't care about how you treated people they didn't care about matters of justice or mercy And guess what? Consequently, the Israelites started not to care about those things as well. They began to become like the gods they worshipped. And this brings us to an unsettling time in Israel's history. What we call the book of Judges, which lasts about 330 years. And you say, why are you telling us, Trevor? Because... So many people, when they think about the Bible, they think about this boring, irrelevant book. It is an ancient book, but it is a relevant book. And it is so engaging once you really begin to engage in it. And once you begin to understand the overarching story, all the other weird components and parts and stories begin to take on new meaning. And and this is what I want us to understand. I want us to understand this overall historical picture because this week is gonna set the stage for next week. Uh, the book of Judges lasts 330 years and all the dark shadows of sin that have existed up into this moment now becomes a dark canopy uh, that just sits over the land and will for the next few generations. And this abandonment of faith by the Israelites portends really dark days ahead. Days that when we read through the book of Judges, they seem irredeemable. When you read through the book of Judges, it just seems Hopeless. Now, here's something that you may not know. Most every Sunday school class in this country for the past, oh, 60 years, uh, probably since there was Sunday school and since children were gathered up by adults and taught the Bible, uh, a lot of the stories out of the book of Judges were censored out because they're just so grotesque. They're just so graphic. There are so many stories in the book of Judges. You would dare not read them to your children before bed tonight. You wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't suggest that you do it. But the book of Judges shows us the darkness of sin and the destruction of sin and just how ugly sin can make a culture. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. And so the book of Judges ends with this commentary. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this was the footnote. People had abandoned God and when people abandoned God, they abandoned any sense of morality absolute morality. When you abandon the idea of God as is presented in the scripture, as God had presented it to his people, the only logical outcome is that you abandon the idea of absolute truth. That there's this idea that something is absolutely true and there's something that's absolutely not true. That it's absolutely true for you and it's absolutely true for me. That there's no such thing as a relative truth. There's no such thing as, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. That is not the nature of truth. That there is an absolute when it comes to truth. There is an absolute right and there is an absolute wrong. And it's absolutely true or absolutely wrong for everybody at any given time in any given culture. And so they had walked away from that. They had become their own moral compass. Uh, they had become their own king. Everybody sat on the king, on the king's seat of their own life and on their own heart. Everybody sat on the throne of their own heart. They made their own decisions. And if it sounded good to them, that's what they did. And if it sounded bad to them, that's not what they did. And everyone became their own authority. And everybody became their own law. Everybody became their own king. They made the law and they decided which laws they could break and which laws they would keep. Because that's what kings do. And everybody became their own king. And they decided that they would do whatever they want with whomever they want, whenever they want. And all through Judges, there's this cycle of disobedience, disaster. Disobedience, disaster. And then the people, they say, God, save us. We've got ourselves into a bad situation. Save us. We've behaved ourselves into a bad situation. Save us. We promise we'll never do it again. We'll never do it again. You ever prayed one of those prayers? God please, if you get me out of this, if you won't let my parents find out, if you won't let them find out, if you won't let, no, God, just please, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never do it again. And then God, God is so gracious. He, he would send judges to them, deliverers, and he would save them. And then what would they end up doing? Disobeying again, getting in a disaster again, praying, God, will never do it again, we'll never do it again. God would send another deliverer, save them again, and this cycle just kept on going. Does that at all sound familiar? Do you know anybody like that? Did you see anybody in the mirror that resembles that this morning? I mean, this is our story. And so the author, the, the, the writing of the scripture is so wonderful. If you appreciate good writing, this is such a good writing because at the end of the book of Judges, it's like the author makes us want a king. It, it, it's as though the writer is saying, Man, if there was a king in the land, if there was somebody who could be a moral authority, if there was somebody who could be a moral example, if there was somebody who could deal with all this vengeance and injustice and violence and oppression, if there was just a king that would stand up for good and right, then none of this pain would have to be going on. None of this chaos, some of this darkness could be pushed back. And so the end of the book of Judges makes us kind of want a king to be in place because everybody had become their own king and did what was right in their own eye. And so this takes us out of the book of Judges and this takes us to the books of Samuel, Chronicles and Kings. Now, when Samuel, Chronicles and Kings were originally written, they weren't divided into twos, you know, in our, in our English Bibles in the Old Testament, 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, 1st 2nd Chronicles. But they were originally written, you know, as one entire book called Samuel, an entire book called Kings, an entire book called Chronicles. And so, Samuel, who is the last judge during this period of time, the people come to him and say, We want a king. He says, Well, why do you want a king? Do you know what kings do? Kings raise taxes, kings raise armies, and kings will take your daughters. Are you sure you want a king? Oh, we want a king because we want to be like all the nations in the world. We want a king like everybody else. And so, that's what God let them have. In 1050 BC, the first king of Israel was Saul, out of the tribe of Benjamin. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And that's pretty much why they picked him to be king. Tall, dark, and handsome. And if you're looking for a great leader, that must be what it takes. Tall, dark, and handsome. But he ruled for 40 years. He had a lot of potential, but he had a lot of problems, personal problems, emotional problems. Uh, He was a highly insecure guy. I mean, it was just, and in the end, his disobedience cost him the kingdom. And in 1010 BC, David, the most perhaps beloved, most known king of Israel, he became king. He was crowned king. He was everything that Saul wasn't. And David was the man, you know, that would be later on remembered as a man after God's own heart. Everything that he touched seemed to turn to gold. He led the nation to victory and prosperity. Later on, you know, after, you know, victory and prosperity has become a way of life, he's sitting in his cedar palace one day and he's thinking to himself, God's been so good to me. God found me in the pasture field. I, I, was, I was just a shepherd boy. I was tending you know, my father's flocks. And all of a sudden, my dad yelled at me and told me to come in. And there was that prophet Samuel. And he poured oil on my head. And then he whispered in my ear and says, On this night, you are anointed to be the next king of Israel. And I had no aspiration for being a king. It never entered into my mind about being a king. But, but here I am, king. And God has been so... Good to me. So I've got to do something for God. And so he looked out his window and he saw that portable tabernacle that had been the way of life since the days of Moses. Uh, for those of you in Somerset, it's kind of like tear down and you know set up church. Tear down, set up church, tear down, set up church. That's kind of how the tabernacle worked. And David said, I'm through with set up and tear down church at the tabernacle. I want to build a temple. I want to build a permanent facility. And, and so he decided he was going to build God this massive, this massive temple. And so he told the prophet Nathan. He said, This is what I'm going to do. And then Nathan Nathan said, good idea, go with it. Later that night, though, God came to Nathan and said, nope, you told him wrong. Go back and tell him that he can't build me a temple because his hands had too much blood on them. But here's what else I want you to tell him. And then, listen to me. What Nathan goes back and tells David begins to be one of the most important promises of the Old Testament. Second, in my opinion, only to the promise that God made to Abraham. And this is what Nathan told David that night. When your days are over, And you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, your own biological descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build for me a house in my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom. Talk to me about this word right here. Forever. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. In other words, David, sorry, I can't let you build me a house, but... One of your future sons will rule over an eternal kingdom. will sit upon a throne that will never end. And David, your house will become the beginning of a dynasty that will never end. And David's thinking to himself, what you would think, wow. Okay, I'll take that. Consolation, prize, good. I'll take that. That's awesome. And so later on, you know, David, David, a man after God's own heart. He's in his 50s. uh, All of his men are out to war. He goes out on his balcony. He sees a girl taking a bath, and he continues to watch this girl take a bath. And that's how every bad story begins for a man. Whenever he sees a woman taking a bath, and he continues watching a woman taking a bath, it's not going to go good for anybody in the rest of the story. And that's what happened with David. He got involved with Bathsheba. And then because of this scandal that was rocking the palace, he decided that he would murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so here is a man after God's own heart. Here is a man that God just made this incredible promise to that one day one of his sons would rule over an eternal kingdom. And here's here's what I want to point out to you because this is the thread that we see throughout the scriptures. God made the promise before David did what he did but God made the promise knowing that David would do what he did because God's grace is greater than our guilt and God's forgiveness is greater than our failure and God's promises are not contingent upon our performance. And so let me point out something else because this may be the reason some of you are here today. Great people can make terrible decisions Because someone makes a terrible decision, because someone makes a bad decision, does not make them a terrible, bad person. Here is a man after God's own heart and he did some pretty bad things. And you know what? So have we all. So for some of those people you're keeping in the penalty box, for some of those people that you're holding the bitterness and the grudge up against, just remember, because they made a bad mistake, Because they did something terrible does not mean they are terrible. It does not mean that you should not love them. It does not mean that perhaps you should not forgive them. And so we see this in this story. And so after David dies, uh, his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon begins to be the wisest king and its glory and splendor all in his kingdom. They said he was the wisest man. I'm not so sure. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you have more than one wife, I don't think you have a happy life. I just don't know how that works. I mean, they didn't make enough I for this man. I don't even know how 700 wives and 300 cocky. How long would you have to calendar out time with all? I mean, so he may have been wise in some respect, but Solomon made a lot of bad mistakes and these women drifted him off into idolatry. And so here's the backstory again, 1050, the kingdom began. But in 930, Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over and there's a civil war. The kingdom splits between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, they're just completely bad. They consistently wonder. They consistently rebel against God. And God sent prophets and said, if you don't turn back, if you don't turn back, if you don't turn back. You think you're chasing pleasure, but you're only going to catch pain. You think you're chasing freedom, but you're only going to catch slavery. So... Turn back to me, and they would not. And so God, in 722 BC, gave them exactly what they wanted. They wanted to be like the other nations. God said, okay, you can be ruled by the other nations. And so the Assyrian army came in, invaded the northern kingdom, and they were no more. They were no more. The only kingdom that was left was the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were kind of up and down, consistently inconsistent God would send prophets to them and sometimes there would be a good king and sometimes there would be a bad king and when there was a good king, people would turn back to God and when there was a bad king, people would turn away from God. The last good king in the southern kingdom was a guy by the name of Josiah. There was a great revival. After Josiah, he had a son who took over, Jehoiakim. And then another guy after that named Jehoiakim. And so there were two really bad kings and there was a whole lot of political unrest uh, the first king, Jehoiakim was a puppet king of Egypt. But then in 605 B.C., one of the great empires of the past was experiencing a renaissance in the Far East, the empire of Babylon, led by this cunning leader by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. came in and invaded and conquered Jerusalem and put in his own puppet king, a king that would do exactly what he wanted. And his name was Zedekiah. And in 598 BC, the final Jewish king is crowned. And this is his story. And this is where we'll leave it in just a moment. And this is where we'll have to pick it up next week because this sets the stage for the next two weeks. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And that was probably part of the problem right there. 21 years old, he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. So here's this puppet king. He has all the trappings of royalty, but none of the power. He's got all the wealth and all the privilege, but he doesn't really have the freedom. He's there to do the bidding of whatever Nebuchadnezzar wants him to do. Now, Zedekiah, when he was crowned king, he didn't know that he would be the last king. He thought he would just be another king in a lot of kings. The prophets had warned them, if you don't turn back to God, God is going to end this thing. God's going to let the nations come in. And you're going to be punished because of the choices that you've made. Your sins are gonna come back and you're gonna reap them. And when you reap the consequences of your sin, it's gonna be terrible. So come back to God, but it says that Zedekiah, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. So he rebelled against God, he rebelled against the prophet of God who spoke the word of the Lord to him. So he refused to restore worship at the temple. He refused to lead the people back to God. He had seen what rebellion had done in his brother's life and in his nephew's life because one ended up dead and one ended up being taken as a prisoner back to Babylon, but yet he continues course, just like some of us. Right now, we are making decisions in our life, and we have seen other people make the same decisions in their life, and we see where those decisions took them eventually, but yet we continue making those same decisions And this is what Zedekiah, he sees what it's done for other people. He sees the trajectory of where it ends, but for some reason he thinks he's going to be different. And that's how arrogance works. Arrogant people want autonomy because autonomy keeps you away from accountability. He didn't want anybody telling him how he should live his life. And if you're one of those people or if I'm one of those people that I start getting angry or I start getting emotional or there's something that rises up in me when somebody tries to tell me about maybe a better way, a different way, you and I should pay attention to that because that may be arrogance that we didn't even know we had. Because it may be that as in the days of judges, so as it is in our lives, we want to be king over our own life. And so Zedekiah is arrogant. And he couldn't take counsel from anybody. And it says that not only that, but he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we're talking about a real, he's not a smart guy. He's rebelling against God. He's rebelling against the prophet. He's rebelling against the most powerful man. He told Nebuchadnezzar, he promised, he raised his right hand and said, I will not raise taxes. I will not rebuild the wall. I will not raise an army. And so all the while over here under the table, he's dealing with Egypt. He's building a secret alliance with the king of Egypt. He's trying to get an alliance with Egypt so that Egypt will join forces and perhaps he can gain his freedom from Babylon. He's living a pop dream. He thinks he's going to get his own freedom in the end and he's actually working against himself. And so as he's secretly dealing with Egypt and he's made these promises to Nebuchadnezzar that he's breaking, all the while in his mind he's thinking, I'm smarter, I'm different, I'm in control, I can manage. Just like some of us have been. Yeah, I know other people have done it. and It was a disaster, but but it's different for me. I know know what I'm doing. I know how to control. I've got myself into this situation. I know how to manage it. He became stiff-necked, hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. He was intractable, inflexible, stubborn. He thought he knew the best way. He knew what he should do. He was told what he should do, but he didn't wanna do it, he refused to do it. He had placed his own will on the throne of his life. He placed his own desires on the throne of his life. He wanted to be king over his own life, but God was supposed to be his king. And so he was choosing his own way over God's way. And he wanted what he wanted and he didn't care who was getting hurt in the process. Now you and I say that we care about who gets hurt by what we do, but our actions sometimes speak otherwise. He was doing what he wanted to do and he didn't care who got hurt in the midst of it. And it's not that he couldn't do it, he would not do it. His motto could have been this right here. My will, God, not yours be done. My will, God, not yours will. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we sure will say it with our lives. We sure will say it with our decisions. We sure will say it with how we manage what we do. Early in Zedekiah's reign, Jeremiah, the prophet, came to him. Now, Jeremiah was the uh, weeping prophet. Uh, There's two books in the Old Testament that he wrote, the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. And so he comes to Zedekiah and says, listen... You're going to have to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jeremiah showed up with, a, with a, a, a yoke on, a collar that would be put on wild animals to make those wild animals, you know, submit to their master. And so he shows up to Zedekiah and he says, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Let me tell you something about kings. Kings don't like to bow to anybody. Kings want to be bowed to. Zedekiah, you're going to have to bow your shoulders. You're going to have to bow your knee, bow your head under the yoke of the king of Babylon. You're going to have to serve him. Kings don't want to serve anybody else. Kings want to be served. Zedekiah, you're going to have to get off the throne and you're going to have to surrender. That's what you're going to have to do. And if you do this, you will live. That's the choice. If you surrender, you will live. If you refuse to surrender, you will not live. The people will not live. Zedekiah, Listen, you're free to choose what you do. But don't forget this. You're not free to choose the consequences of what happens as a result of what you choose to do. Now, if you want to have something sobering, if you you want something to kind of just nudge you and terrify you, to think about, yeah, we're free. We're free to do what we want to do. Free to do what we want to do. But we are not free to choose the consequences of what we choose to do. See, rebels wrongly believe they're able to manage the consequences of their own behavior. That's what rebels do. Rebels like me, rebels like you. So Jeremiah said it's life or death. That's what it is. Because this rebellion of yours is gonna lead to pain. Now, let me tell you what every good parent does. Hopefully you're a good parent. Every good parent wants their kid to make an association with rebellion and pain. If you rebel against authority, if you rebel against your parental authorities, there's gonna be pain. If you rebel against good authority and the people in your life, there's going to be pain. There's always pain connected with rebellion. And that's why, you know, you, you give time out at our house. That's why we spank. We spank with a wooden spoon. That's what we do. <gasps> you know, if you're one of those people, like, I can't believe it, then just take your self-righteous nose and just turn it right around and walk right out that door. And so, I'm just kidding. Well, spank-friendly crowd here, I'm telling you. Spank-friendly crowd. All right. So we're on the same page. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, Grayson, my six-year-old, he, he got into trouble. And I was shocked to find out when we had kids that they were sinners. And, and they are. I don't know about yours, but ours are sinners. And, and they will lie and, and they will break rules. And so one day he, he just disobeyed. And then he lied about it. And so I took him to his room. I had the wooden spoon. I stood him there in front of his bed. So what, what do you think be the appropriate consequences of what you chose to do? And he crossed his arms and he said, Well, maybe spank me with that pillow. (laughs) You have one of those moments as a parent when the response was so good, you just give a reprieve. It's like, okay, yeah, that was so good, I'm not going to spank you. I mean, yeah. This is what Zedekiah is hearing from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, rebellion is going to lead to pain. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes to town, he's not bringing a pillow. He's not going to bring a pillow. This is going to be painful. And so he says, why? Why will you and your people die by the sword? They don't have to. Why will they die by famine and plague? They don't have to. With which the Lord has threatened any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. You don't have to go down this path. Just submit, surrender, get off the throne, walk out those gates and bow your neck to the king of Babylon and you will live. But he had some friends in his life that was giving him some different advice. And so Jeremiah said, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon for their prophesying lies to you. He had a group of people in his life saying, listen, don't listen to Jerry, he's old-fashioned. Don't listen to Jeremiah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. King of Babylon, he's not going to hurt you. Matter of fact, there's going to be no war, there's going to be no famine, everything's going to be all right. You're going to be all right, Israel's going to be all right, everybody's going to be all right. Guess who Zedekiah wanted to listen to? To his friends. Because we drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior because the beliefs that excuse our behavior often seem the most believable. So one morning Zedekiah wakes up and they tell him, the Babylonian army is outside the city walls. And they had come just like Jeremiah said they would. Judgment was literally at the door of the city. Who did Zedekiah run to in that moment? Jeremiah. And he went to Jeremiah and he says, please pray. I bet he did. Please pray. Jeremiah says, it's not time to pray. Time to pray is over. It's time to act. It's time to surrender. You cannot pray your way out of a situation you behaved yourself into, Zedekiah. Whew. Because that's what we want God to do. And then we get mad at God when he doesn't get us out of what we behaved ourselves into. We pray, God, get me out of it. God said, you behaved your way into it. You're going to have to behave your way out of it. Jeremiah would say, Zedekiah, God's coming for you. Not to pay you back, but to win you back. Because God loves you too much to let you get by with your rebellion. And so he throws Jeremiah in prison, doesn't want to hear it anymore. And then he gets scared and then he goes back to Jeremiah and says, is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, there is. And so he lets Jeremiah free and Jeremiah just starts preaching that everybody in the city is going to die. Everybody in the city is going to die if Zedekiah does not surrender. And so they arrest him again. And then all of a sudden, one day they came and get Zedekiah and they say, Zedekiah, something amazing's happened. It looks as though the Babylonians are leaving. It looks like they're packing up, but they weren't sure. And then once Jeremiah got back in the, in the graces of Zedekiah again, they started talking. He says, this is what the Lord has said. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and the city will not be burned down and your family will live. So again, Zedekiah, just surrender, just surrender, just surrender, just surrender. Zedekiah, this is your decision. It's your choice. Your family doesn't have to be hurt. The city doesn't have to be destroyed. The nation does not have to be plundered. If you do this, your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, but if you refuse to surrender, there's gonna be a price to pay. If you refuse to surrender, you're not gonna be able to manage the fallout that comes as a result of the consequences of your choices. Zedekiah, God told me to tell you that if you don't surrender, if you don't get off that throne and walk out those gates and bow and surrender, the city will be destroyed, people will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed. And Zedekiah, right now, it's all you. This is your choice and only you can make this choice. Only you. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy for people to get off the throne and go surrender. You're going to have to swallow some pride. I know this is not what you want to do, but this is what God says you have to do. This is not an easy thing, but it's the best thing. The Babylonians are outside. God's coming after us. And we have an opportunity. You have an opportunity that if you surrender... God will stay his hand. And so the Babylonians were camped outside the city. And they would stay there. And they would cut off the supply lines. And they would cause a famine inside the city. And sickness would break out. And people resorted to cannibalism. And the suffering was was absolutely immeasurable. And all the while, while the people are hurting and suffering and starving to death and dying, Jeremiah is saying, surrender! Surrender! Why would you not just surrender? And then on July the 10th, 586 BC, the first soldiers breached the wall at Jerusalem. And on July 18th, Jerusalem falls. Zedekiah and his family fled the city and they were caught down on the plains of Jericho. And Nebuchadnezzar brought Zedekiah front and center along with his sons. And in front of Zedekiah, the Babylonians killed Zedekiah's sons. And then they plucked out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he would ever see were the bodies of his murdered children. He never once thought it would come to that. He was led off in shackles, taken back to Babylon. And here's what we learn. Surrendering to God will cost you something, but refusing to surrender to God will cost you something far more. What do you need to surrender? Who among us needs to get off the throne and stop being king of our own lives? What do we need to give up? What do we need to give into? What do we need to say yes to? What do we need to say no to? Who else needs to get hurt? Why continue to hurt you and those There will be a day. I'm telling you, I've been there, lived it, got the t-shirt. There will be a day when you say to yourself, I never thought it would get this far. And in that moment, the only option, which is ever the only option, it is to surrender. You get to choose the ending of your own story. Choose wisely. It didn't have to end that way for Zedekiah, but it did. And that was the story of the final Jewish king. 500 years later, Magi from Babylon show up in Jerusalem asking a question. We've heard rumors of the birth of the king of the Jews. All of a sudden Jerusalem was filled with the story that a king had been born. 30 years later, that baby that was born in Bethlehem was crucified on a Roman cross and inscribed at the top of that cross said, King of the Jews. Who will sit on the throne of your life? You, someone else, or perhaps a king who was willing to give his life for you, surrender his life for yours. Perhaps that is who should sit on the throne of all of our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Father, speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak as only you can. Show us what we need to surrender, what we need to lay down, what we need to say yes or no to, what we need to walk away from. God, show that to us in this moment. And may we not be like Zedekiah and be stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted. May we surrender. And maybe we just pray this prayer, Heavenly Father, today, I surrender I surrender I surrender be king in my life let's all stand together at all of our churches we're going to sing one last song that reminds us who the king of our life should be who the king of this world is Jesus the king of kings father we sing this to you in Jesus name amen